Raven Chacon, Terrence Blanchard, Jesse Montgomery, and Black Violin. These are just a few of the artists featured in Noteworthy Stories, a new series from WDAV Classical Radio that broadens our view of classical music by shining a light on the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. I'm Loki Karuna, host of Noteworthy, inviting you to check out who is Noteworthy this week and to catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. To the returning listeners, thank you so much for coming back week after week. I couldn't do this show without you. To the uh, new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that decolonizes the idea of classical music. I bring in stories from the so-called classical music field, interviews and conversations with change makers in the field, and, you know, my own nonsense out of my mind, (laughs) all toward that ultimate goal of helping people broaden their perspective and their vision around this idea of classical music, all ultimately as an example of how we really need to be decolonizing and liberating ourselves from all structures, but music as that uh, example. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses and to contribute, go to the website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, share this week a conversation with the composer Oswald Huen. He was a, a, a staff member at the American Composers Forum. Uh, He's been supported and platformed by the American Composers Orchestra, Mount Organization, really doing some incredible stuff out here. So I can't wait uh, to share my conversation with him, with y'all. But this is actually a very special episode because one of the you know, oldest and not like by age, but by length of time knowing oldest content creators that I've known, you know, the content creator that I would argue put me into content creation way back in the days of a show called Education. I'm going to give it up and welcome as a special guest co-host this week, my dear friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, how are you? Thank you for being here. What a privilege and an honor (laughs) and a fellowship it is to be in your studio this is in real time. Nam yoho renge kyo. Nam yoho renge. You have uh, you've been uh, a new you you are a New Yorker. You've you've been here for more than ten years. You know that gatekeepy stuff. Yes, but but, but let's just consider yeah, for the sake of this. Eleven years. How how have I done? Does this feel like a New York City apartment studio? Have I done it here? This is. I had said it uh, when I first got in here, but you all, if you can imagine, like a nineteen sixties era like black liberation type movement come on liberation with that that feeling a filter that it's not even it wasn't a filter back then because it was the 60s so it looks like with hella people in the living room gathered Mm -hmm. up and talking about how they're going to do this or that this looks like that space like that in my mind i've seen pictures like that from history and i walked into this space today in 2023 and was like wow you've you've really done something here and i know that you came from minnesota Mm -hmm. so like you probably feel like you even made some comments earlier about like the door being closed. You feel claustrophobic and like yeah. it's small, like hints of you feel it's small. You are so blessed or lucky or whatever it is. Fortune. Fortunate. Yes. <laughs> uh, the universe smiles in your favor to have this 
amazing space. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Um, we're going to talk about uh, at the end. So after my interview with Oswald, uh, we're going to talk about the, the choral stuff that's going on here. In the, oh I almost said that here in the United States, here in New York City. Really, it is an American thing, an issue to talk about, but oh, cer certainly with uh, specific manifestations here in New York City. Um, but for right now, um, just to give the people, because you know, you and I are going to be doing some uh, content creation things in the future. Now that I'm here in uh, in New York, um, and you know, our our dialogues, you know, historically, like I mentioned back in the educate uh, education days, that show, um, and and so many things. You know, we we spanned a lot of topics, and that's something that as a content creator, I'm looking forward to diving into more. Of course, I have lots of opinions and lots of things to share when it comes to decolonizing classical music, but the world is so much bigger. And I think really as a means of decolonizing classical music, we have to normalize affixing those conversations to other conversations. And we've, you know, shout out to Scott Blankenship. You know, we did a lot of that uh, and have done a lot of that on the Triloquy podcast. But, you know, Jonathan, being here with you, you've gotten me into thinking about that more. And I actually uh, suggested a video from YouTube for you to watch before you came over here. And because, I had already watched right, it before that's what I'm the saying. time. So we're, so we're already on we're, the same we're, page. We're on the same page. It's like education was 20, what, 12 to 14? Because I was in Detroit for a yeah. lot of it. It was back in those days. And also, let me also acknowledge that you credited me. Thank you. Because as one of the old school content creators amongst that, what we would call... I guess first class of black queer content creators. Mm -hmm. Some of us rose to the highest heights, and then some of us were forgotten and by time. And some of us did it, <laughs> <laughs> right? And some of us didn't, and I was one of those people. But that's all right. I mean, um, and 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 look, shout out to uh, Kit Fury and Crystal from the Read. They are the top of the top. You can't talk about black podcasting if you don't know who they are. And we started. We were before them, you yeah. know. So we really were on that cutting anyway, because we we. It's not a competition. It's <laughs> right, just I thank you for giving the flowers at the beginning. And and we're definitely going to get to that interview. I don't, I don't want to keep people uh, waiting on that too long because mm -hmm. I know folks are excited about that. But anyway, um, as, as just a peek into some of the content uh, that we're going to be, maybe this is sort of one of our practice rounds. Oh, for sure. You know, there's this video that we both happen to watch again as, as we are uh, equally minded and that, uh, similarly minded in that way. A production company um, on YouTube called Jubilee. So they specialize in dialogue and dialogue that uh, is unique to most people's lived experiences. You know, they'll have uh, shows where you have uh, male feminists dialoguing with anti-feminist women, you know, so, so stuff like that. We both happen to check out a dialogue between black conservatives and white liberals. First and foremost, who cares? Like, why, from your perspective, why is a dialogue like that something that is uh, even worth offering time to these days? In this day and age, it's all about clicks. It's clickbait. It's Jubilee. And I love um, the work of Jason Lee, who's mm -hmm. the founder. Yeah, shout out to them. You yeah. know, East Asian in Los Angeles who did this thing and that's a whole other discussion for me as being someone who is part of the Asian community We'll as get well. there today. Uh, well, you know, um, seeing Asian people, seeing Asian people on YouTube in the early days of YouTube and then that evolving into multiple production companies creating videos like this. So don't want to shade Jason. Of course. At all. But it is clickbaity. 
there's often a lot of nuance missing from this when their motto is something along the lines of like empathy mm-hmm. and like understanding. And you set you set up these you set up these scenarios and these conversations that are very binary and are very like able to go off the rails because there are not multiple nuanced viewpoints. Yeah. And this is yet another one of those things. And we'll get into it. I'm cutting on the air. Sorry if y'all can hear that, but it's, it's, it's hot. hot in here. <laughs> um, and they're, you know, j- just like I do with the weekly articles that I talk about, you know, people can go on and uh, find it and form your own opinion. Check it out. I encourage you to. Um, there, there's so many specific little points that we can get into when it comes to how they thought about reparations, what they thought about things like affirmative action. I think the the overall thing that I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about is the idea of marginalization so through conversations where we have a group of black people who align themselves with conservative values don't necessarily agree with things like affirmative action uh, uh, reparations certainly not something as nuanced as decolonizing classical music i'm not even sure that's a, a conversation they would even be be interested in it makes me feel like maybe i am more marginalized than most black people or other black people because at this point in my life it's not about me trying to prove someone wrong or trying to prove myself right as much as it's about taking my honest to buddha lived experience you know understanding that other people have that lived experience as well and trying to understand what actually forms the separation we really jonathan have folks on this video and really in society who who are black and arguing against things that I see as necessary for black people. I don't see how I can talk about diversity in orchestras and arts administration and and all of these fields decolonizing classical music and assume that that is not also present, you know, so that that's why it's relevant to me. How do you even begin to engage personally, not even when it comes to dialogue, but what is your reaction to the fact that there are black people out there that are so misaligned or differently aligned with politics that someone like me considers just common sense, especially when it comes to black folks or things for black people? Well, the number one thing is that we do acknowledge is that black people or no no group of people are a monolith, right? Right, exactly. So like I do like I fully believe in a black person's right to believe in the way that you've just described, even if just the facts alone say like these things happen to black people, these dynamics, w- this is how these d- these particular dynamics work in the world. This is how black people were marginalized or pushed to the edges of society and cut out of sp- specific opportunities and somehow and somehow still be able to exist putting those things together or not and then pushing your opinion of black conservatism or whatever it is it's just very strange to me and especially in a setting like again what jubilee provides which is not nuanced not nuanced enough to talk about uh decolonizing classical music and not nuanced enough to even talk about the very thing that they claim that they want to talk about Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so you got to be very careful about what you're consuming and listening to and repeating. And a lot of people don't do that. They just consume it because it's clickbaity 
and the content creators make it because it's clickbaity. I mean, and understanding why you have a belief that for me, that's why I feel so confident in the way that I think about decolonizing classical music, because I understand why I know the symphonies of Beethoven in and out to a degree so much further than any of the symphonies of William Levy Dawson or the countless spirituals that are that I didn't say his name because I do know his but (laughs) oh I thought we were just naming black books (laughs) no but there is a reason why I learned hey diddle diddle and hot cross buns before I learned wade in the water you know, so like it's it's me understanding what went into the way that I think I think they call that epistemology or something. I just feel like that's missing from a lot of people. And certainly, oh, this uh, like I'm not trying to disparage nobody, but I feel like that is that has to be missing from people who go along with for the sake of whatever. I, I don't even care what the what the reason is, but for a marginalized person to be on a video speaking against reparations. I'll go as far as to say to be sitting on a stage and playing a predominantly white concert within a predominantly white season with the symphony orchestra. That is what the system needs to persist. They don't need white people preaching about Beethoven and Brahms. They need black people who go along so that they can say, look, we're diverse. We're this and that. We're just platforming great music. I don't, there's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot there. Um, I will say this. I don't even know what this is a response to. I put my finger up because I was like, I need to remember this point. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say that you only see it with black people, but that's not true. No, you do see it. You see it with non-black, non-white people, and it's easier to call it assimilation, right? Especially when you talk about like Asian people or even Latine people. Yeah. Right. Uh, we're able to say, oh, you're whitewashed in this. But with black people, it's the antithesis of whiteness, which is a construct of the early, was it 20th century with the Irish and all this? I don't know. We'll look up the history yeah. <laughs> later with show notes, whatever. Um, but whiteness is a construct right. because of America. So it's just jarring, like you said, to see black people basically assimilating in this same way that might be a little bit more forgiving but not forgiving but a little more understandable for people who come to this country and see two things and say oh of course i'm gonna go this way because it's the quote-unquote more successful looking safer looking route and oh no i need to avoid these people you know so like that's why i think it's so jarring to see it when black people have been in this country just as long um and we've talked about this on education about the whole african-american versus quote american right these were some of my earliest quote-unquote woke talking points <laughs> of like, well, I I wish, you know, why is it that I have to be the hyphenated American? Right, right. And now here in 2023, I've dedicated myself to calling white people European-American just to see what happens mm-hmm. and then see where that conversation What does right. happen? What does happen? I don't, I haven't, been an, <laughs> I haven't been around enough white people lately to even start doing it, to be honest, so. Oh. We're going to continue this after the interview because <laughs> there's more to talk about. But I, but I think this is a good transition point because you mentioned people coming to the United States and understanding the the way that things have been since since 1619, really, you know, and, and probably even before with the extermination of indigenous people. Anyway, you have so many people who have come to the United States 
and thank goodness have leaned into their culture, leaned into their histories, their stories, uh, what they've been taught through their families, what they have been taught through so much and applied it in a way where it can be shared, not as a point of contention or, or wagging fingers at anyone, but celebration of what that is. And that's what uh, this week's guest, Oswald Hyun, has done an incredible job of doing. Uh, so he has a, uh, he's an orchestral composer. He has a piece uh, that, uh, sort of lays out the story of family history, you know, all the way, you know, connecting back to the uh, Vietnam War um, with uh, a beautiful uh, middle movement that through the black lens is mother and child. It's a, it's a different uh, phrase in, in, uh, uh, in Vietnamese idioms. Anyway, just a really great example of what it looks like to enter a system that is predominantly white, like orchestral music, like so-called classical music, and still celebrate self and celebrate culture uh, in a way that's really getting them lots of attention, not only for that, but for the quality of the music as well. Hope y'all enjoyed my conversation uh, with Oswald, just uh, to get us into the conversation. An excerpt here from the piece of music that's getting them so much attention, yachting, to get us into my conversation with them. Hope y'all enjoy. <laughs> It's certainly progressed. It's um, a lot more accepting of many different styles now and that each person can find their own niche. Uh, but as a whole, I still think that different sects of classical music lean towards different uh, aesthetics and aren't necessarily as open, you know, particularly orchestra, which is, can be a big conversation uh, point today, is not quite as accepting as is well, an American orchestra specifically aren't quite as open to very, like truly like experimental and avant-garde music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a matter of aesthetic only? Let, let's say you wrote a piece that sounds exactly like a Mozart symphony. That doesn't mean you're going to get on, you know, every concert program around the country, right? Yeah. I mean, it has a lot to do with identity, but also like how I think your music can ultimately sound like quote unquote, like Mozart or simple, if, mm -hmm. if that's what you want to call it. But if you're noting in a way that the musicians can't figure it out, you know, they're not going to be as uh, nice to you, essentially. <laughs> Do you have experience with mus orchestral musicians not being so nice? Personally, not quite yet. Uh, <laughs> I've been lucky so far. I've been lucky so far that the, the, the most anyone that ever asked me is like, so do I switch to air tone here? And then I was like, <laughs> yes, that's like the most pushback I've gotten so far. So I've been lucky. 
Well, good, good, good. Uh, one of the things that I hear from composers a lot of the time is that writing a piece for orchestra uh, can feel like a waste of time because, you know, it's a needle in the haystack to get a piece actually performed by an orchestra. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Why, why should a composer bother to write a whole score for orchestra? Well, I think that it's definitely one of the biggest challenges is, is getting your music performed, workshopped, read, uh, just, just so you can hear it. And for me, I, I think that I find the orchestra to be the most expressive medium for myself in that I just find that is where I feel the most comfortable in that I'm able to really express my musical ideas. And that's not the case for everybody. Some people really thrive in the electronic world or, or just smaller forces in general. It's just, it's a lot to consider when you have to work with that many people and to really figure out how to navigate that sphere musically first thing, but then once you get there, how do you navigate that, that sphere socially? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Say more about that navigating that sphere socially. I mean, you're, you're dealing with so many personalities, like in a, very much in an orchestra, very, a lot of strong personalities, you know, you have <laughs> on the different layers, you have, of course, the orchestra itself, which you know, has their own politics within each section, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or at least social dynamics. Um, so, you know, you are, in general, you will be interfacing mostly directly with principal players, probably, if there's questions from the orchestra. But then on top of that, there's the conductor, which who you'll be the, you know, your primary point of contact in most cases. But then above that, too, you, you know, you, there's so many people behind the scenes that make an orchestra possible that you need to, you know, talk with and you need to, be able to communicate with. You have the librarian, you have administration, you you have the stagehands and other people behind the scenes. There's so many different layers to an orchestra that you need to be able to, you know, the biggest thing is just be on time yeah. on things and to communicate clearly. And that can be really difficult when even they're not really communicating all the time. Right, right. And you you mentioned stagehands. I just want to underscore for folks who may not know, um, when you go to a city like New York, for example, performances can be made or broken even based on stagehands. When you talk about unions and who's allowed to move the timpani, it's a, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a big quagmire. It's a, uh, it's, it's a it's a huge issue. But you know, <laughs> you seem to have traversed some of those issues uh, pretty well for. Uh, a so-called emerging composer. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about that phrase (laughs) here in a bit. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I want to tap into the ways in which your compositions, or at least one of your compositions, has um, highlighted your Vietnamese heritage. Um, Was that something that you were always interested in celebrating in or outside of music? My the Vietnamese, my, my identity as a Vietnamese person has always been important to me. It's something I've always been very aware of and cognizant of and something I'm proud of it's for a long time. Um, but in terms of my music, it was something I was definitely resisting at first when I really first started to get into composing uh, because, you know, the first composers I really got to learn about that were Asian were, you know, a lot of the Chinese composers uh, who, who, were, who came to America, such as Chen Yi, Xiu Long, uh, Bright Shang, and all those people, right? And a lot of them are in incorporating it, their Chinese uh, heritage into their music, right? So I, I didn't want to be another Asian dude writing a, the Asian pentatonic melodies uh, on top of my music. I, so I was trying to resist that at first, um, and but eventually, in, in in it was um the death of a family member that really kind of pushed me into that direction. It was someone very important to me, but that caused me to reflect a lot about. Why am I pursuing classical music? What is is this really what I want to do? 
am I creating music that I want to create? And that's kind of what got me just to consider like, hey, maybe I should just embrace this. Because I realized, you know, a lot of the music that I was writing, I could I could hear the influences of, of Vietnamese folk music that I grew up listening to, something that's always been a part of my life. And I think specifically in Vietnamese pop music, although it's getting a lot more westernized nowadays, uh, like the music back when I was growing up, the pop music was highly influenced by the folk traditions of the country. Wow. And so that's something that's always been in my ear. When you talk about the Vietnamese folk music that you grew up listening, how did that relate to the other music that you were surrounded by? Uh, I, I do know that uh, you play the bassoon, so surely that music was different than what you may have listened to on the radio or in your own time. How, how did all of those things relate for you? It For a long time, I, I, I kept them separate. And I think eventually I just kind of accepted that music is music. And I think that's something that I a lot of musicians um, face at some point in their lives because they've practiced in such a specific genre or style for so long that they, they don't really know how to let one another, they, they influence each other into like mix. And for me, I, I found that just listening, uh, and because there was a period of time where I like wasn't listening to as much, um, you know, just growing up in America, but Mm -hmm. uh, when I really started to listen to it again, I realized how naturally it came to me if I tried to quote unquote mimic a folk style on bassoon or something like, oh, mm -hmm. like, well, like these fingerings seem to come like just the scale patterns and things like that, or like the, the inflections really come natural to like how I am making music. Um, and so that is something that I thought I could organically uh, incorporate into my musical language. Where do you meet barriers when you try to fuse and mix those things? I'm sure there are certain sounds that a bassoon can't make or another instrument that you're writing for can't make, you know, in a way that um, is present in traditional Vietnamese music. Right. I think uh, a really big thing is just the ornamental style of, of a lot of folk music, but especially in Vietnamese music, where the vibrato is incredibly wide, uh, where oftentimes a lot of the folk styles are completely... It, no, no meter there's no there's no actually pulse to it uh those are things that i, I navigate and try to consider a lot when i'm incorporating music uh, vietnamese music into my own compositions and one thing i i've been working with a lot in particular is the vietnamese lullaby hmm. which is um something that's very near and dear to me um and it's a very melismatic style of singing uh and completely free of time and it's very a mournful sound and that's something i really struggled to try to incorporate into uh, something specifically I did was I put into an orchestra piece and uh, I was trying to figure out where and how do I incorporate this completely meterless form into something that almost always requires mm -hmm. some sort of form. And then I, I ended up deciding that I wasn't going to do that. And I, there wasn't a, a um, actually a very large section of the piece that was completely meterless. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And then it seems like when you engage music like that or, or write music like that, it has to come with cultural teaching or cultural competency on the part of the, the musicians. I mean, how does it feel for you to um, have the responsibility, I'll say, of, of bringing not just music to a space, but culture and cultural understanding to a space? I think it, I mean, it's a process for me as well. I'm, I'm Vietnamese American. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm I'm not Vietnamese specifically, you know, being from the country. I am also an outsider in a lot of ways. And I am also learning 
as, as I'm, I'm creating these pieces. And I think what's really important for me is that I really need to truly understand and like both like the quote unquote theory of, of something, or at least the practice of it. And also the context from in which it comes from and realize that I'm putting it, why, why am I putting this into this context, the orchestral context, maybe with a certain narrative, but why am I doing this? And that's something I consider on a personal level, but then bringing that into the orchestra, I've orchestra specifically, I've learned that I just need to say it on the page. Uh, <laughs> I just need it because they, uh, uh, there's only so much time in a rehearsal, I think. Uh, but when it comes to really bringing that into the, this, the Western classical space, it's not something I t take lightly. And I, it's a constant process of trying to figure out what is the best way to communicate this. Do I need to communicate it in this way? Is there a way where I can create something intuitive and so that I am really staying true to uh, the spirit uh, and style of the music that I, I'm borrowing from? And I want to pull on a thread that you presented there, you know, uh, Vietnamese American versus Vietnamese, you know, from my perspective, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I will state that many people have many different opinions. So, you know, I'm, I'm not representative of a whole community, but, you know, I prefer the term black, you know, as a, as a means of highlighting uh, the diaspora, you know, me being a part of a, a global community of people of African descent, as opposed to African American, not that I get offended or anything by that, but, you know, when I'm asked, I usually describe myself as black. Um, is, is there no sort of sense of a Vietnamese diaspora to, to tap into, uh, specifically, you know, when you say that you identify more as Vietnamese American than just Vietnamese? I, I think that for me, Vietnamese American um, also goes into the Vietnamese diaspora for me because the Vietnamese diaspora exp diasporic experience is so much different than being a Vietnamese person in Vietnam, uh, and it's very informed by, in my case, my my parents' journey to America, um, because we're informed by an experience and so so heavily influenced by something that we will never experience. Yeah, um, that that resonates all. That still, I, I'm, I've tried to navigate both in my relationship with my parents, my grandparents, my other family members, uh, but also within myself. Yeah, something that I think I probably took for granted uh, when I was coming up, uh, growing up in Memphis, the, the, the only so-called Asian people that I ever knew or ever saw were Vietnamese. There, there weren't Chinese people around. There certainly wasn't anyone from Japan or, or any other uh, sort of country, which meant, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Vietnamese restaurants before I really even understood what I was doing or, or engaging uh, a type of Asian culture that isn't always put to the front. Um, do you feel a sort of, um, or have you experienced a sort of marginalization within the broader Asian diaspora, considering that, you know, earlier in this conversation, you said you listened to uh, Chinese classical music and didn't want to fall into the pentatonic scales and, and all that sort of thing. Um, I, I wonder if you can speak to that, you know, the, the marginalization of certain Asian experiences within that broader Asian diaspora. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing about the term Asian is that it encompasses such a large and diverse body of people. And literally and billions I, of people. It, literally 60% of the world or something like that. Yeah. And I, for me, I think that 
I agree that to, to an extent that East Asians have been more uh, within the, the zeitgeist and conversations at hand. And, you know, even if thinking just a couple of years ago when all the uh, articles and, and posts about anti-Asian racism and hate yeah. were, were most prevalent, um, I remember reading those articles and seeing that, oh, the people that I primarily talking about or interviewing are of Chinese descent, Korean, Japanese, of East Asian descent. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 there is a sense that when people talk about Asian issues, they, it's often ignoring a lot of other issues within the, the Asian community as Southeast Asian, South Asian, Central Asian, West Asian. Uh, it, 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 it is a very difficult thing to navigate because we are such a diverse group of perspectives. And I think that for me, especially, I think that I do think there's a power in the the monolith that is Asian American or AAPI, uh, but there people often ignore the nuance that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it can even be harmful when you consider the ways in which the orchestral industry engages DEI. So you know, it's it's very much about oh well, Asians are well represented in orchestras when really they're probably talking about Chinese people. If I just had to, you know, throw, throw a a guess out there. I have a a friend who's black and Filipino and, you know, he used to call himself Blasian, but now he's leaning more specifically into his heritage as someone from the Philippines or heritage from the Philippines. I also think about the fact uh, that people from India aren't really represented in orchestras or in Western classical music, even though they also fall under that so-called Asian umbrella. What should be done with that word? Should we throw Asian out? Are there other terms that you've encountered that are, are, are a bit more equitable? What are your thoughts on that? Personally, and I said it again, I, I said it before this, I, I do think there's a power in, in the, the term Asian American or Asian American Pacific Islander. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that it is a force for organizations, a force of unity and solidarity. And so I think there is merit to it. I think what needs to be considered is, is that just that nuance and considering the different perspectives. And, you know, you talk about like the, the being Asians being well represented in a, in orchestral space and, you know, be clear, East Asians are well represented in the string sections of <laughs> orchestras. It's a very, like, even gets deeper sure. than that. And, yep. you know, if you look at the wood sections, the brass sections, if you look at opera, uh, you know, it's, it's completely, and then you go behind the scenes as well. It's, we're not well represented and, and issues of Asian, Asian and Asian American issues aren't being necessarily tackled or even addressed. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of representation outside of string sections and typically the violin section, even if we want to be even more specific, (laughs) you know, you weren't one of those musicians. You were very much a bassoon player. What was your initial idea of what your career could be? Did you ever aspire to be a bassoonist in some orchestra or was composition always sort of there for you? Yeah, I actually... I started on saxophone, so I was even further out so of that world. <laughs> and then I uh, I got into bassoon because I was joking about it with my eighth grade middle school band director because we didn't have any bassoonists. And he was one of the nicer band directors that I've met where he didn't force children into playing instruments so he could fill out a section. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was joking about it and maybe he, t- he took me a little bit too seriously and he showed up the next day with bassoon. And that's kind of what my journey started with bassoon and I for a long time I did consider um a career as a bassoonist or even a career as like 
you know, a pit musician doing all the doubles because I do dabble in all the other woodwind instruments. Uh, but honestly, what really stopped me was the reeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's what stops a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I converted to plastic eventually for most things. Um, but I think what really did draw me away from bassoon was when I first started composing. Uh, I started arranging for my high school's pep band my oh, senior wow. year of high school just doing like really the short tunes in between football plays. Um, and then that created that, I think naturally curiosity about like, what if I just like made something myself? Um, and so that's, yeah, that's what kind of drew me away from bassoon. How do you even know how to correctly write within the range of a piccolo or, or of a mellophone? How, how, where did that come from? I, that was just Google. Okay. <laughs> a lot of Googling, a lot of asking people like, uh, I knew that as someone who I played a lot of the other woodwind instruments, just like dabbled. So I knew the general ranges of those instruments, but then, you know, coming up in big band as a saxophone player for a long time, I, I just assumed every trumpet player could like scream up there. Um, <laughs> that was a lesson learned. <laughs> and so it just, and a lot of it comes with failure, messing up, um, getting yelled at by performers, you know, just, just humbling yourself to know that like, I don't know everything. And were you even writing the battery charts and everything? I was, yeah, I was writing a bit of that. Oh, good for you, good for you, good for you. Well, and you know, it's it's interesting how you know our every, all musicians' careers can go in interesting places. In addition to uh, being a composer, you're also in arts administration, where you support other music creators with uh, the American Composers Forum. Uh, a conversation that you know I've been a part of with ACF for many years now is that word composer you know it's it's such a uh, loaded word for so many people i know a few uh music creators who completely reject the word composer i guess i'll i'll start by asking why is a uh, composer something that you are interested in being uh known as or referred to as i think a lot of it just comes with when i first started composing it was just convention like i'm oh like i'm composing i'm writing notated music right uh, but I think, and ACF is also, you know, thinking about what the word composer means. And we are starting to use the term music creator in most of our language. Mm -hmm. It's just someone who creates music in some form. And I think, you know, a composer is essentially someone who is just creating sound in some way. And I think the baggage with that term is the history of it. As you know, even if you look at it, if you look at a Spotify discography and like to seeing the who's labeled as what you, you know you have producers being separated from composers being separated from arrangers and there is this sense of of what's the word i'm forgetting the word but like sense of I power with the yeah there's like power to the idea of a composer's hmm. um legitimacy is the word i was looking for oh, i see yeah legitimacy the you know the idea is that you are a composer that you in a lot of the conversation i think a long time ago that it was such such a much more superior term than someone who is producing beats right there's like and that's a very insular culture because people who are going to concerts or listening to hip-hop or anything don't draw the line between composer arranger no. producer you know no no it's just someone who's making the music yeah what, what what have the conversations been like for you um, 
as someone supporting music creators? What 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 is it like to be on that side of the uh, well, really on both sides of of the fence, you know? But but what is it like specifically to support up and coming creators? What are some of the questions that you find you get a lot, or some of the issues that you uh, that are brought to the front? Uh, specifically, I I think I want to talk about um, this our newest batch of awardees, and that specifically our age. The ACF Creator Award. A lot of these people don't aren't coming from the the traditional classical sphere. Hmm. They're they're the first time. This is the first time they're really either working with like notated music or they had just gotten into it recently. And a lot of people are looking to bring their the world they're coming from, whether that be like an indie singer songwriter or a gujang player, into the the more of the classical world. Mm-hmm. And I think it is so interesting to hear so many different perspectives. And really brings a lot of issues into mind that you know not necessarily that something I would have thought of because uh, you know I guess I'm a different human being with a different experience yeah. and I think it's important uh, for me to I think it's important for any creator to really be aware of like what everyone else is doing what everyone else is concerned about like what what are the issues that pe- those other people in other parts of the world are are facing and that really allows me to I think have a more holistic mindset about both music creation and also to be able to support these creators because my being informed by this one person's perspective will allow me to help someone coming from the other side of, of the that world. Yeah, it, it, it sort of makes me think about this idea of music creator versus um, a person who creates music, bringing, bringing the whole experience and the whole person um, and, into the project, into the into the piece of music, into the collaborations, what, what, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to <laughs> this word composer, we have phrases like emerging composer. So, you know, um, full, full transparency um, to date, uh, many of the programs that I manage with the American Composers Orchestra have been branded as uh, uh, initiatives for emerging composers. But I've, sl- you know, what what started as whispers in my ear saying, "Oh, I hate that phrase, emerging composer," turned into social media posts that I would see. And then a couple months ago, um, I read an article on I care if you listen on this exact topic of how you know this phrase emerging composer can be problematic um for folks who aren't in the inside game <laughs> as we are i wonder if you can speak to uh what some of the issues are that people cite when it comes to that phrase emerging composer why, why do people consider it sort of problematic yeah and i think the term itself emerging composer is it was came with good intentions that it's you know it was meant to identify people who aren't as established in the career yet and trying to give them the, the opportunities but the biggest issue, a lot of the issues that at hand are one that uh, people conflate emerging with other statuses within their per- a person's career, whether like that's students, age, or, like yeah. students, like why, or I'm recently graduated, I've seen even, or uh, emerging composers are between 18 to 30, 32, 29, or something like that. Um, and also there's the issue of, I know, and another issue is of the self-identification of someone who might still consider themselves emerging but to like a lot of other people oh you, you've clearly been have all these opportunities and you're quite well established within the sphere and so i think the idea of trying to find an emerging composer in your call for scores or competition is problematic in that it's very unclear there's no set definition of that everyone agrees on and i think that although it could 
come into other issues that I think that people in organizations really should just say what they are looking for. Mm-hmm. If they're looking for someone between the ages of 20 and 30, they should just say that, you know, because I think all oh, the biggest thing, a lot, a big thing is that composers are applying for so many things, right? You know, there are people who are applying to 30 or 50 things a month, even. Yeah, and oh, yeah. it's, it's a labor of, of love. It's a labor of, of, of mental health. It, it, it takes a lot out of people people and then to get all you know it's going to be inevitable mostly rejections um it, that it piles up and so i think it helps people also be able to divvy up their time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what we at aco what we look for specifically are people who have had uh, fewer than three pieces performed by a professional orchestra that's how we define emerging um, so there are no age limits or anything like that. Um, that's something that I'm I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. But even so, there are people who have you know had hundreds of performances of uh, chamber pieces or maybe things like solo piano, but have never broken through uh, mm-hmm. when it comes specifically to orchestral music. Do you think it's fair to separate orchestral when we talk about this idea of an emerging composer? Um, should someone who is very famous in the chamber world be eligible and get opportunities before composers who have had neither chamber nor orchestral music? I, I wonder where you draw the line there. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the orchestral world specifically is a special case in my view, because it's so hard to get your foot in the door. Mm. Like you either need to, get into one of the few as like programs that are offering people these readings like uh, the earshot readings, or you need to know three very specific people at an organization who like your music. Um, and that's, that's a really hard question because, uh, you know, oh, maybe some people think that, oh, this person who's been writing all this chamber music will inevitably maybe get that opportunity. But, you know, that could very well not be the case. And I think maybe I, I don't I don't know if I draw the line there. I think I think give it to them. I think it's because it's such a hard space to get into. And, you know, often a lot of the people who are uh, a lot of people who are getting these opportunities may not be someone who's necessarily recognized or or represented in the orchestral space. And it's a space that you, you know, despite all these challenges, have managed to break into, namely uh, with a work titled Yading. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about this piece, how it came to be, how you got its first performance, and, uh, and, and why you think it's taken you so far. I, so this piece, I, orchestra has been something I've wanted to write for, like since I started composing it, it something I knew I wanted to hopefully get to do. And so when I was applying for my master's programs, I was specifically looking for programs that I could work with large ensembles and orchestras. Mm. And so I did my master's at the University of Missouri, Columbia uh, at Mizzou. And the two opportunities that I was interested in was one, uh, they had, they are the home of the Mizzou International Composers Festival, which is alarm, Alarms Will Sounds Baby. Uh, and then also they had readings with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. And so I applied for that when the opportunity finally came up and I was lucky enough to get accepted as one of the three composers who got to write a piece for readings. And so that was how I got the first opportunity to write this piece. Um, And then the way that program works is that I get one reading in the fall 
and then I have a chance to revise it and then have another reading in the spring. And so after this October reading, uh, I was lucky enough that the conductor, Stephanie Childress, who was, was the assistant conductor of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, her position just ended, um, liked my piece enough that she wanted to program it on the St. Louis Symphony's next season. And that was really what broke me into the, the, the orchestra world. And that came with a lot of right place, right time that I happened to be going to Mizu when she was the assistant conductor. And also that she happened to be of Vietnamese descent. And so she, I think she specifically felt a lot of resonance with my piece. And so maybe if she wasn't Vietnamese descent, she might've still liked my piece enough that she had done that, but I, I will, I'll never know. And I don't, you know, who knows, but take what you can get, that was what, yeah, I- take what you can get. Exactly. Um, Again, and I think a lot of orchestra opportunities is being in the right place at the right time, because uh, you never know what someone may want to look for in a program. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell the folks um, what this piece is about and what it's inspired by? So this piece, uh, Yadin, means family in Vietnamese, and it is an exploration of intergenerational trauma, uh, heritage, and what the, the relationship between generations uh, the first, it's in three movements, and each movement is exploring different aspects of of this these intergenerational relationships. The first movement is titled Chana Kongnai, which means like father, like child, and this is looking at culture and tradition. The second movement, means there's nothing like rice with fish, there's nothing like mother with child. And this is looking at war uh, and in colonization. The final movement is titled Blood is Thicker Than Water. And this is looking at assimilation, uh, immigration, uh, in, yeah, essentially migration. And really, it's a journey of taking mu- Vietnamese folk music. I'm, t- I'm looking at this through the Vietnamese lens, looking at specifically of the Vietnamese boat people in the diaspora that came from them. And at, it, it, each movement takes different Vietnamese tunes, the first one being a folk song, the second one being... Uh, a Vietnamese Catholic chant. And then the final one is an imagined Vietnamese melody and kind of looking at this process of what a musical colonization could look like. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm going to circle back to that concept here in a second. But, you know, every time you describe that middle movement, rice and fish, mother and child, I think about so many of the similarities that can be uh, drawn across different cultures. You know, that makes me think about the Negro spiritual. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Um, and, and of course, you know, along with those similarities, there's similar ideas and experiences with this ancestral trauma that you're speaking to. For, for me, it, it looks, you know, one way. I wonder if you can speak to how ancestral or generational trauma shows up um, across the Vietnamese diaspora. I think um, <laughs> it's very heavy in in the, the Vietnamese diaspora because we are a generation that comes from war. Um, not a lot of a lot of um, migrants and, and refugees are. And I think specifically with Vietnam having such, in, you know, being a relatively young country, it has been in almost constant conflict. You starting with uh, the French colonization, then you had Japanese imperial imperialization, and then you had right after that. You go into to war uh, with America, and I think having all that baggage has really impacted how 
the gener- the Vietnamese boat people and the generation uh, before me really saw the world mm-hmm. and was trying to interact with the world. And I think that has caused a lot of pain uh, just throughout the diaspora in trying to resolve that. Mm-hmm. I think... I think in Vietnamese art, especially, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of that. It's reflected. I think you see a lot of that suffering and that reflection of uh, of loss. And what I'm starting to see, and I'm, I'm the conversations that I've had with other Vietnamese artists, is that we we don't want that just to be the case. You know, it's a very important part of who we are, it, but we want to bring more of that joy. That is is very apparent. I still think in the Vietnamese community. Uh, I don't know if you ever been to a Vietnamese party. It's a hoot. Uh, but <laughs> you'll have to invite me to one. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure that happens. Uh, but yeah, and so I think that's the direction I see things going in the conversations, and I'm really proud to see that. I, I'm very proud of the diaspora, and I think even in my little corner of that diaspora, I think it is a beautiful thing to see. Again, so many similarities, because when I think about myself, I'm more than just the descendant of a slave or, or, or of slaves, even though that is a very vital part of you know my identity and, and, and who I am. I, I think it's, it's deep. It's really deep about how all of these specific individual experiences are oftentimes more similar than we, than, than we think about. Have you had the opportunity to go back to Vietnam? I've went back a couple of times as a kid. Uh, I think the last time I was there when I, it was like 2012, I think. Uh, and I was supposed to go back in 2020. That didn't happen. And I'm hoping to go back soon. I'm really hoping to go back soon. And hopefully also there to go learn some Vietnamese folk music is my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Well, you know, um, you, you mentioned colonization. And of course, this show is all about decolonizing classical musics. Um, and, and I do say classical musics because there are so many types mm-hmm. of classical musics, A, and so many of them that have been colonized. From your perspective, is that the case for what would be called Vietnamese classical music? Is there some decolonizing that needs to be happening with these folk songs? Or or from your perspective, has that tradition been preserved uh, pretty genuinely? From what I know, uh, and you know, I, I I know I think I know a good amount, but you know from what I've seen, a lot of that is being preserved pretty well. Um, it's it, you know you see the the old traditions, a lot of them are still going on. There are still people practicing in those styles. You see a lot of other traditions being, you know, slowly forgotten about. Uh, there's Vietnamese music I've like read about that. I'm like I can't find a single recording of or, or someone talking about it, but. But I think you see a lot of that kind of quote unquote colonization in the pop music sphere, of course, you know, with pop um, American pop music being such a global phenomenon uh, and seeing that in K-pop. But you see that in what we call V-pop. You see that that is starting, especially now that, you know, even uh, with hip hop becoming a lot larger present in Vietnam as well. You're seeing even further movement away from the Vietnamese folk traditions that were so prevalent in pop music, uh, it's still there, but it, it, it's very different now uh, than what I used to hear. But now that when I listen, I get curious, I listen, I'm like, it's so different than what it used to be. So on the other hand, if, if we flip it around and look uh, specifically at uh, so-called classical music in the United States, 
is your Vietnamese inspired orchestral music um, decolonizing classical music in its own way? You know, in, in the performance of the work that I heard, I definitely heard aesthetics that were very different than what, you know, we typically hear, even though all of the same instruments are there and, and those sorts of things. Do, do, do you see uh, this music as broadening the, the sphere for um, orchestral music in the United States? I think in some ways, yeah. I, for me, I think that what I'm going for in my music is, is a large part of it is I, I'm thinking about it in terms of Vietnamese aesthetics, even if I'm not using Vietnamese folk music, I think that's always present in my mind. And I think a lot of Vietnamese music, like a lot of the traditional music, a lot of the folk music is incredibly sorrowful, lamentful, and, and mournful. A lot of it you hear is uh, very haunting. And so that's like something I bring. I always think about that, the music that I grew up. Although even though the lyrics, even though like the happy music, even you look at the lyrics and it gets so sad. Um, <laughs> And so that's what I, I'm always bringing into mind. It's like, I, a lot of the classical music I think of is like, you know, you think of the Mozarts and the Beethoven, the Brahms, and it's always either like quite happy, bombastic, uh, has a very set idea of like uh, what orchestral music is, mm -hmm. um, this, this very large sound. And for me, I, I love stripping back, <laughs> stripping it back and bringing it to its bare bones. Um, because that's what a lot of Vietnamese music is. It's often a just a vocalist with a very humble, minimal accompaniment. And so that's something I, I try to think about a lot. I'm, I'm going to draw another <laughs> parallel here. It might be a little weird, but um, one of the questions, if there's one question that I get the most in my consultations and, and all that sort of work is, well, we want to sing Negro spirituals, especially for Black History Month, but we're an all-white choir. Are we allowed to sing Negro spirituals? So, of course, that's a conversation and a, and a thought path that that we go down. But I wonder um, how you think about that question as it applies to your music. Most orchestras in the United States are not only predominantly white, but all white. Are there pitfalls that music directors and musicians might fall into without you on the ground or without someone who really understands what's behind this music that you've written? I think it's certainly possible uh, in both the examples you gave. Um, I think it is on the whole collective of those of that group of people to do the work, uh, to put in the time, to learn about that music, practice that music, and really understand the spirit and what makes it whatever tradition that is. And I think for me, I often am not working with, when I do work with orchestras, I'm not like particularly saying this needs to sound more Vietnamese. I think a lot of that work in the orchestral space is on me, is on the, the composer. It is, it is on the artist to communicate that as best as possible. Again, because I think the biggest thing about orche orchestra is the limited time there is to work and collaborate with, the, with these musicians. Because most of the time, you're not going to be able to workshop ideas and things like that. Right. Uh, and so that's why, I, for me, in the orchestral process, at the very least, I, I take a lot of I've spent so much time on notation uh, and also considering what is the best way to communicate this idea so that I don't have to be there. And, you know, again, that might not always be the case and it might come out quite flat. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that's also something I've, a big part of being a composer is also learning how to let go. Wow. 
Wow. Say more, say more about that part. I, I think that a lot of composers go into composing um, because they have a tendency to want to create, want to control. Uh, you know, for me, I, 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 I would, am somewhat of a control freak, not so much nowadays, uh, but I really like to create things and like have a very set path. And, you know, I learned very quickly that, okay, what I am trying to get is not what's going to come out most of the time. I think that composers have to learn to let go of their ideal because it will never be the ideal. Um, unless you're working with like the Jack Quartet, then maybe it will be. But, uh, <laughs> but for me, I, I think about a lot within like relationship to composer and conductor. I think I see a lot of similarities in terms of control mm. and that conductors have this have almost this ultimate control in a lot of ways and then composers you know we we become powerless um even if, if we're there we often become powerless there's nothing we can do once your music once your music out in the world's out in the world and i think that's really unique in the western classical space because we're often not performing our music a lot of people are but often we're not and so we have to be willing to say that willing to let the creative visions of other people into our space. So let's say right now you have the ears of many conductors and many music directors. You're talking about this ultimate power that even extends into programming decisions on what makes the stage. Um, you know, as not only a composer, but someone who supports music creators, how would you advocate to conductors the importance of new music? Uh, works by living, breathing, walking composers. I mean, that's the only way for any art or any culture or any tradition to advance is to have new creations come into the space. And I think that it is vital for orchestras to be working with living composers because we we are hopefully what will be also be performed in the future as well. You know, the be, becoming whatever the canon or whatever what you what people want to call it. Um, even though the idea of the canon, I think, is, is flawed, I think that we composers must become part of the new zeitgeist or else classical music will never evolve. And I think that programmers, curators, conductors need to be willing to, to let, to experiment a little bit, to take a risk, and to invite composers into, into their spaces because I think that Composers are the people who are can be pushing um, most spheres, I think, of, of classical music into, into the future. So for those programmers and curators and music directors listening, um, how can they learn more about you, uh, more about your music, and, uh, and get you performed somewhere else? <laughs> A good segue. Um, so you can find my, all my, most of my music and uh, how to contact me at oswaldhuin.com. It's just my name.com. Uh, I'm on social media. They're all private channels, but I let most people into my Instagram anyways. Uh, but yeah, you can find me there. Uh, you can contact me at my American Composers Forum email if you want to get some support. Happy to do that as well. Great, great. Well, I, I wanted to close you know, with a question again, since we've been talking about uh, the, the intersections of your artistry and your heritage. Um, when I think about composers like William Grant Still and Florence Price, you know, when, when most people do, of course, we think of them as Black composers, even though some would argue that it's not fair or maybe inappropriate to pigeonhole them into that one 
category. For me personally, I never mind being called a black anything, black bassoonist, podcaster, however you want to think of me. I don't have a problem with that nomenclature. I wonder, you know, as your career continues to bloom and, and blossom, how do you engage that conversation? Should we think of Oswald as a Vietnamese composer? Is that what you hope will make the encyclopedia one day? Or do you have an, another vision or hope for yourself? For me, I think being Vietnamese is so important to me. I don't mind it. I, I think I know a lot of people who don't want that attached their their ethnicity or their identity attached to that the term composer because they want to be known for their music. Uh, and you know, of course, I, I totally agree and I respect that. But for me, being a Vietnamese composer is important to me because I am working in that medium. Why should it be a shame to include that? onto onto some some random verbiage A bit more there of yachting by Oswald Wynn to uh, close out our dialogue. I'm just so grateful to have been able to um, have Oswald in my orbit. First of all, it's, it's, it's something how small of a world it can be when your uh, colleagues with someone who uh, you know is in an organization somewhere else, you end up at certain meetings together anyway. So to be connected with Oswald in a few different ways is something I'm really grateful for. And I'm so uh, glad to have been able to uh, feature him on the Triloquy podcast. Uh, you haven't heard the interview yet, so I'll, I'll say that for the folks listening. You Thank haven't you. heard the dialogue but you actually, <laughs> you actually did come up. I basically, with Oswald, I was talking about how I have a friend who is multiracial and moves away from this idea of Asian whatever and uh, more in this uh, specificity. I, I mentioned you of Filipino food, Filipino, uh, Filipino attire, not just Asian food or, or Asian right. whatever. I did ask Oswald his ideas on um, the importance of the specificity between Asian fill in the blank and fill in the blank more specific cultural whatever you know um, and and how that you know feels and and how those things are balanced. How do you engage that? What do what do you think about this idea of the word Asian? Especially, let's talk about um, Western classical music. You know, just just as our example, there are a lot of so called Asians in American orchestras. You know that that that. They are not underrepresented in American orchestras. But what do we mean by that when we say the word Asian? So just for the people to be clear about what we're talking about, you know, that's what we're talking about. We don't typically say there are a lot of Chinese people, Chinese Americans, you know, whatever in orchestras. 
we talk about there being a lot of Asians and how a lot of us, you know, myself included, um, you know, we're doing a lot of learning around implications of those types of words and how that erases uh, the diversity of culture under that so-called Asian umbrella. Anyway, I'm, I'm doing too much rambling. Talk to me. What do you think? Um, without having heard anything that he said, you know, this is completely my opinion. Uh, but I think it applies differently in different situations and different conversations. So if we're talking about, quote unquote, Asians in orchestras, then are we talking about East Asian people? Right. Because I don't know. Are there hella South Asian people in? Are there? Right. Are American orchestras are filled there, with uh, Indian people? Indian you know? people or right. people from Pakistan? Like. Mm-hmm. West Asian people, like, are they in there? Southeast Asia, are there a lot of Vietnamese people in these orchestras? Or is it just Japanese, Chinese, and Korean? Mm -hmm. Like, is that what we're talking Mm -hmm. about? Because if that's what we're talking about, then we're talking about East Asian. If we're talking about social issues here in the United States, like stop quote-unquote Asian hate, then we're talking about people who appear East Asian. Or we're talking about xenophobia slash sinophobia, the phobia of people who look Japanese, Chinese, mm-hmm. or Northeastern Asian, and some Southeast Asian people too, who often get, and this is my whole thing, mistaken from for Latina people. So, like I you, have, <laughs> I have this running joke. Y'all swear I speak Spanish. Living here in New York, people always come up to me, and the tea is I grew up in San Diego, part of my life as well. So I do kind of speak Spanish, so I can understand. But that's beside the point. Um, now, when we're talking about Asian people or culture like what is that mm-hmm. you we're talking about you must be talking about chinese culture or japanese culture or filipino culture or vietnamese culture uh asian music what is that like right. this right. is this word applies to like this lump of people on a continent over there so different uses for different conversations where nuance and specificity are needed then i think we should use nuance and specificity. Yeah, yeah. When I was in uh, Knoxville, I did an interview. It didn't really have that much to do with music. It was just a promo for, again, what they call uh, the Knoxville Asian Festival. But they were talking about the different uh, cuisines that would be at the uh, festival. And that was that conversation was the first time that I had thought about the idea of what the person I was interviewing called Burmese cuisine. I think right. we're supposed to talk about uh, Myanmar these days. I, I don't. I'm, I apologize for not understanding those politics. But any, my point is, I had just never thought about uh, the depth of diversity that is under that so-called Asian umbrella, and how we do such a horrible job of uh, of erasing so much of it when we aren't as specific as we can be. Again, so to to loop it back to the interview. We can't sit here and talk about Oswald as someone who writes orchestral works with Asian aesthetics, quote unquote, because not only is it not just that the specificity of the subject matter is very much Vietnamese. You know, he has written uh, Vietnamese folk songs into this music. So it's it's so much more than that. And I just think it's important to get into those conversations every now and again, because as we move forward, trying to be a more equitable people, uh, you know, uh, certainly those of us trying to decolonize certain species spaces, we have to understand how we have been conditioned to lump people into one monolithic group when there's so much there, um, so many different ways to engage, so many different types of needs that we have to uh, talk about, whether we're talking about classical music or not. I think that's that's true and something that personally I, I enjoy getting more practice in, the more people I get to meet and talk to, just expanding my experience so that 
I can get closer to knowing what I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> on these issues. To me, it's so interesting how in Western classical music history, which is basically the music history that we learn. Certainly. So, so the people, the, the of, children are learning better now, but us. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad the kids are all right. But in our era, when we were taking these music classes and getting our degrees and whatnot, it was Western classical music and it was just classical music. And it's funny how we're so able to say, Lord, and y'all are going to strike me down on this podcast because I don't know what what from what. <laughs> but Mozart was from a particular country and worked for particular people that wanted him to write in a particular language yeah. on the continent of Europe. Mm-hmm. But then there were other people on the continent of Europe where oratorios were written. And I'm speaking in very general terms because I don't want to be wrong. But then like, <laughs> oh, this one has to be in English because sure. England wanted this one. But guess what, y'all? It was all on Europe. So do we just call that European or do we have a very layered history and very nuanced discussion about what the Germans were doing versus the French versus the UK. Was it the UK back then? I don't know. Like England. Mm -hmm. Right. So we know all about that, but we don't know about the differentiation between China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, the Philippines, Laos, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, and all the beef that they have with each other. Just in history. I don't know about classical music history, but like history. And and the realty, musically, they had gone through evolutions and revolutions and uh, practices being built and torn down for thousands of years, far before there was anybody named Bach out here, much less Beethoven or any of these other folks that, you know, uh, are are taking center stage all the time. But, you know, anyway. Because because we have centered the (laughs) white people all this time. Well, because we have centered the Europeans Mm -hmm. all this time, somehow they are the main lore thread in the classical music universe so anyway well you know speaking of censoring white people this this podcast is called triloquy so you so are you ready to get to it just for uh, just a few minutes this i'm is ready already, to get to it this is already running long so the last time you were featured uh on the triloquy podcast you were the first and i think only i'm sorry if i'm forgetting about anyone but certainly the first call-in <laughs> guest <laughs> that we uh you know uh, included on the show and you were talking about your interaction interactions with a choral organization uh here in the city i don't even know if you want to name them i'm gonna I'm name leave them the you. new york city gay men's okay. course i named them before calling in frantic and so you were you know we, we we were talking about the ways in which their practices um could use a little bit of work when it comes to equity and and inclusivity um give us the update are you involved with this group have you had a change of heart or a change of thought since everything has has happened? What's going on between Jonathan Gibbs and the New York City Gay Men's Chorus? I think right after I called you, that this was summer of 2021 when all that went down. Um, there were meetings. I record my meetings um, just so that I have receipts because as a black person, you're never going to be believed. You have to always produce proof. Um, and the new incoming board chair told me like listening in listening in on a whole meeting of every the review of everything that happened said like i don't think jonathan should have been kicked out of this group once or twice both Mm -hmm. times he was kicked out and so um you know it was wrong now it's 2023 and nothing has been done at the board level to apologize to me and welcome me back i have heard from the inside that things are better like they're more aware that the entire gay and lesbian choral association gala what i think i got that right um has really pushed uh inclusivity belonging and equitability 
But, you know, even with all that promise and with people saying it's okay to audition again, and if you auditioned, you would be welcome back in with open arms. Um, until I get my apology, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather go to Japan this fall. And so that's what I'm doing. So what struck a chord with me was hearing you talk about hearing people say how it's so much better now and those sorts of things. The situation that you went through with them, of course, uh, is a variable in this so-called better situation for black folks or people of color or whatever in this ensemble. Does that not give you any feeling one way or another to know that you know, <laughs> you died so that they may sing, so to speak. I no, mean, <laughs> no, because I've still gone to the concerts and I still see black people there and I just wonder what they're going through right now because hmm. people telling me, oh, it's better now. Yeah, well, you can't control everything that happens, even at an like at the organizational level, there are still going to be certain people that are still involved. There are still certain people that are involved um, and that were involved in situations that either happened to me or people that I know. In that organization and if they're still there then i know that it hasn't been fixed i also know that some people were not invited back so is that doing the work i guess but whatever so we can sit up here and you know drag them and pull them down all day but that doesn't offer opportunity that doesn't uh, create any value for anyone else necessarily what do you think is the solution what does new york city need to feed the artistic uh, urge to scratch the artistic itch for which organizations like the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, from your perspective, is not that space. What, what, what needs to happen? Well, at the, a lot of my work was recognition to people of color and black people. I was on a music advisory board and my friend and I came up with an idea one year to have an all black American, I think, or maybe mm. it was just black uh, composer slash musician slash pop uh, concert. And we did it as a majority white course. We did it, but there was a lot of care and nuance and there was a lot of direction and there was a lot of advising of what not to do, et cetera, to where we produced a pretty cool concert um, that was respectful to the history of black music in America. Um, I just wish that there were a space where we could do these levels of production, but it were in a place where we didn't have to constantly monitor and be like, is this okay? Um, and that people just got it by us talking about it versus having to explain the history behind XYZ and doing all of that work. So not saying that um, we need just a separate space, but we do need a, 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 <laughs> a separate a but equal choir, <laughs> a separate but equal choir, like a, a, a space that is just more open and able to understand things as they are today. So let's loop this conversation back around to the conversation we were having at the very beginning about, you know, us watching this video about black conservatives and speaking down on reparations and those sorts of things. All skin folk and kin folk. So you can't draw the line at skin color when you're talking about creating these spaces. Oh, absolutely not. What is what is actually the measure? Can Dell come to the rehearsal? And why is he allowed to <laughs> come to the rehearsal? I mean, is the, Candace the, Owens allowed to to be in the choir? You oh know, my where, God. Where, where do we draw the line? So the fact that we were able to do it with that group of people in the first place, yeah, there are going to be some naysayers like, why are we doing this or whatever? 
But eventually everybody went along, or maybe a lot of people were just like, wow, we get to do this music. There was actually a reverence for a lot of history that a lot of people didn't know about the history of black contributions. Our country. Our country. No, in not America. even just black and Not people. even just the That's, contribution, you know, the creation of period. the music industry, period. Right? So, like, <laughs> like, I guess you wouldn't be invited to this new cookout <laughs> choir if you were vehemently against the fact that black people create like these facts mm -hmm. right because if you tell somebody like oh yeah black people did this and i mean there's even uh, uh dvorak right mm -hmm. he was like this is the true sound of this new world yeah or something like that yeah. i don't know if that's the, quote. The, the listeners know the quote i've said it many times <laughs> okay so <laughs> so like there you go facts are facts as uh whoever that is in drag race facts are facts mm -hmm. not as as anti-drag race establishment but um facts are facts in the negro melodies of uh, the new world are all uh, of the tools for a great and noble school of music. You know, d d d for, for the folks who gonna press me and ask me if I know. So, you know? so, so there you go. So, that, like, that's, that's what Dvorak said. To answer your question, if Candace Owens would believe that that's the, if she were to look at a book or the history and be like, okay, yeah, I, I agree, then fine. But if Candace Owens is up here talking about, nah, that's not true, and K-pop is its own thing, and it's like, girl, like. Motown was first. Mm -hmm. Like they were stressing people out <laughs> and running people ragged before K-pop. Let me let me go one more step before before we dismiss for today. Is it a test for entry? I mean, how how do you measure people's dedication to what we see as the truth of of American music? Well, going back to my situation, if it's reported, if something is reported that is problematic, then the organization has a responsibility to remedy that situation. And if if it does not for upward of ten years, then we have a problem. It sounds like you're advocating for dialogue. It's so simple. It's so simple. <laughs> it's easy. It, it's so easy. Just, just as we have been doing for 33 minutes here, and that's not even counting the Oswald interview. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. To we, we Y'all can't see, but we both have our champagne. We do. To, to many more dialogues uh, between the two of us. Um, maybe every now and again here on uh, the Triloquy podcast, but certainly in what we create, we don't have a title, we don't have nothing. nothing. But it's but it's gonna be but something, we're here. and it's gonna be very exciting. Thank you as I, all uh, as all. What? No, go ahead. I, I, I was gonna say I have been trying to get you here for ten a decade. <laughs> well, I'm to here. do exactly this. <laughs> so here we are to to renewed beginnings. Indeed, indeed. All right, thank y'all so much for listening. Huge shout out again to Oswald, and I'll talk to y'all again next week. Until then. Mm -hmm.